0: Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all things healthcare, whether it is healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, policy issues. Today, we are going to talk a little bit about healthcare, but a lot more about fun. Yes, believe it or not, we are going to talk about fun. So, I came across this book called The Fun Habit. The Fun Habit, the author is Dr. Mike Rucker, who is a behavioral scientist, organizational psychologist, and charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. Well, he wrote this book called The Fun Habit, and I read it and I thought, you know what, we need to have this author on. Why is that? Because Could we actually bring fun to healthcare? Could we bring fun to what we do day in and day out when it comes to taking care of patients, whether it is when it comes to dealing with administrative tasks, administrative issues, and what we deal with in the grind of the healthcare system? Mike wrote this book, uh, I believe, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, actually, it occurred that he wrote the book after the passing of his brother. I invited Dr. Rucker to the show to share with us why he decided to write this book. What is actually fun? Can we really scale that into all sectors when it comes to work, especially in healthcare? He generously accepted this invite, and I hope you'll enjoy what we are going to learn about the fun habit. Can we actually have more fun? And can we enjoy life to the fullest? I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical about this. I don't know if we can, and I hope Dr. Rucker is able to convince me about the opposite of this view because I think it is easier said than done. So I'm going to challenge my guest today about the fun habit. I'm going to try to can have him convince me that this is achievable and in return, hopefully he will be able to convince you. I hope you'll enjoy today's podcast with Dr. Mike Rucker, the author of The Fun Habit, which is available in bookstores and pretty much everywhere you uh, consume your books. I bought the book myself, and it was a fascinating read, an interesting read, was a very easy read, and was very logical, despite the fact that I remain skeptical, and I hope he's able to convince me that we can have fun. So The Fun Habit with Dr. Mike Rucker today. Before I air the episode, I wanna plug the show and ask you to visit my website at www.shadynabhan.com, subscribe to the show, rate the show, and write a brief review. I would appreciate if you refer friends and colleagues to this show. I'm sure there are some topics that they will be interested in. You can also watch all of the podcast episodes on YouTube, my YouTube channel, which is Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. All of these episodes are available on my YouTube channel. And lastly, my plug is for my own book, Toxic Exposure, The True Story of the Monsanto Trials and the Search for Justice. You can find this book anywhere you consume your books as well. You can buy it from Amazon or from my publisher's website, Johns Hopkins University Press. That book depicts my involvement in the litigation trial against Monsanto when I served as a medical oncology expert witness in the first three trials that went in front of a jury. All of them were won by the plaintiff patients. Read these stories and much more uh, in my book, Toxic Exposure, The True Story of the Monsanto Trials and the Search for Justice. Without further ado, Dr. Mike Rucker on Healthcare Unfiltered. I want to start by you introducing yourself to listeners. Uh, you know, our goal is to talk about your book, obviously, The Fun Habit. How it came along and everything like that, um, and uh, that you have to convince us that we can have fun in every single setting. But <laughs> a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about you.
1: Yeah. So some from some of your listeners might know me as a HEMS influencer. Uh, my day job is uh, working in workplace wellness. I'm part of an ambulatory care unit that provides upstream services, so you know preventative services uh, in mass for uh, Providence. Um, but my academic background is in organizational psychology, specifically using tools of positive psychology for betterment. And for folks that don't know what positive psychology is, it's essentially a facet of clinical psychology that's n- meant to not necessarily treat you know mental deficit, but tools that anyone can use for betterment. Um, you know, the big names in there, Dr. Cheek sent me behind, Dr. Segleman. My backstory, kind of how the book came about, because you already mentioned that, you know, we're here. But my, to,
0: just before you get to the book, when you say organizational psychologist, I'm familiar with the term psychologist, so are my listeners. But when you say organizational psychologist, can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so?
1: absolutely. So it's more, you know, psychologists tend to go into a certain situation and provide an intervention, right? Like for a clinical psychologist, that might be CBT. Now ACT is really popular. For an organizational psychologist, it's more population-based intervention. So we're looking at group dynamics. You know, a lot of us go into uh, a corporate setting and figure out, you know, what is wrong with a particular situation and how can we fix that through intervention. So for me in particular, uh, you know, my academic background is really looking at uh, workplace wellness in general, like how um, are people getting it right and why are so many things in that Area going awry, and so academically, that's my background.
0: So, how did you decide to write a book? Because you wrote the book literally in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> and your book is about having fun, and it's hard to believe that we were having fun during a pandemic. So, take me through what led you decide to write this book.
1: Yeah, so the book got sold before the pandemic. So, um, for folks that don't know how uh, selling a nonfiction book works. You know, generally, you write a chapter, you write the outline, um, and then you're given you know, an advance to actually write the book. So the book and the ideas uh, really came about in 2016. There was a lot of emerging research suggesting that here in the Western world, how we're pursuing happiness. So a professor I name drop a lot, Dr. Iris Mouse out of Cal Berkeley has done some really interesting work in this area, but it's been replicated over and over. And it's essentially that this kind of over emphasis on we've got to be happy good vibes only you know what's now referred to as toxic positivity um can become really problematic and that happened to me because i was a big zealot of you know positive psychology and it really you know literally quantified my life to try and be happy all the time and it came crashing down on me and so um you know the book was sold just to be clear before the pandemic but then mm-hmm it got sold right before the pandemic and I had to actually, you know, finish the book during the pandemic. So it became uh, an interesting endeavor made complicated. And again, I already name dropped hymns, but um, I was in Orlando in March, 2020, right before, you know, the world shut down. Hymns actually was, I believe the first major conference to decide to shutter their doors. And, you know, there's a whole history behind that. Um, Cause if you recall, like Trump was going to show up and, you know, there's a lot of history um with regards to making that decision um but i i ended up going anyways because my daughter's birthday uh was around that time and i promised her i would take her to disney world and ended up getting covid and ended up unfortunately one of the the folks that suffered the fate of long covid um and had uh some interesting neurological symptoms for about six to seven months and that made writing the book even more challenging (laughs)
0: That, that was you you had covid and you had side effects that lasted six seven months
1: yeah I'm still dealing with neuropathy but I had some severe neurological effects I essentially lost the ability to sleep so for it started about three months after getting the initial infection but at the end of May beginning of June 2020 um it was the most bizarre thing I, I just there, like for three weeks I wasn't able to get sleep I was getting like little 30 minute episodic, um, intervals of sleep. And for whatever reason, you know, I, I don't understand neurochemistry enough to know exactly what happened. Um, and I don't believe anyone really fully understands, you know, the, the effects. I think some folks believe it's neuroinflammation. Some folks believe it's a vascular, you know, result. Uh, I don't know. Um, what I do know is that I couldn't sleep. And once I couldn't sleep for about three weeks, I did end up, unfortunately, you know, having some, um, negative clinical outcomes and it certainly got depressed you know
0: wow oh that is that is um that's very tough to write a book while (laughs) having all of these um i mean but the the good news is like
1: like i mentioned in the book i think that that's one of the crux of the book right is that you know this whole idea that we always need to be happy has become problematic and we know that leads to um, generally, negative consequences if you have this over concern, right? Not valuing happiness, not wanting your family to be happy, not wanting to flourish, but always ruminating on, like, how can I get happier? Or what, you know, w- comparing yourself against others, or, you know, what we call um, essentially succumbing to the hedonic treadmill, right? That's the clinical term. Um, I, I realized because I had, you know, at least immersed myself in the science there. I knew that once I got better, I would be able to get into a place where I could experience joy again. And so that really helped me have the resilience to get through that really tough period.
0: Uh, I want to just express my condolences about the loss of your brother. Thank you. As I was, you know, I started reading the book and um, really uh, the first thing you mentioned is how obviously you lost your brother and um, it was... uh, a sharp. Con- I did not expect that to start the book. Obviously, you know, it, it's a, a book that is basically dedicated to fun and happiness, and it started by a tragedy and the loss of your loved one. T- tell me about this, I mean, what was was his loss uh, a motivation for you to to try to find more nicer things in life? I guess, I mean, how how much how much of his death led you to this quest
1: yeah so i think what was the illumination of his passing was a real intimate relationship with time so i had always been striving and had always moved the goalposts and you know i do like the idea of peak performance and always trying to uh, best yourself right but what i didn't realize was how much I was giving up because I thought that time was infinite, right? And so I had two small kids. I kind of was pushing time with them to the side because I was, you know, I could make that up in the future. I was letting, you know, friendships go that really, you know, as we know from Robert's amazing study, you know, he has a great book out right now about loneliness and, you know, essentially, you know, how impactful those things are when we let friendships go. I had kind of pushed all that to the side just because I was achieve, 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 right? And so to answer your question, what that did after I got through the long process of grieving his death was, holy cow, like I probably only have 40 good years left. And with regards to my kids, less than that. And I'm not spending my time in a way where I'm going to look back at it and be proud of my choices. And so that was really the impetus of going, you know, it's not just all about me and how I want to be happy. It's really about how can I create a life that's joyful, but that connects me to these people that I love and the things that I love doing, you know, so that it's restorative rather than depleting. And I think you see that in your field right now, right? I mean, um, I talk about it in the book because some of my academic work is with physicians. You know, I, I believe the latest APA stats right now, Physician burnout is at the highest it's ever been, 69%, if, if I've got that right. And we can put it in your show notes. Um, you know, like, so here, you know, just to, because I, I believe a lot of your listeners are physicians. Like, in the book, I champion it. You remember that. You know, I think this is one of the most important uh, vocations there is because we're supporting life, right? We're trying to, to keep people well. And yet, um, because there's this sort of lack of joy you know you're seeing just all sorts of interesting outcomes and that's not that's a well studied vocation so i'm not trying to highlight it i'm just suggesting that it's it's one that's in need of some help and along with a host of so many other different vocations right here in the US specifically we're just so poor at allowing people the opportunity to enjoy time out of work Um, You know, whether that's the entrepreneur stuck in hustle culture, whether that's the person working too many hours because it's just not humanly possible to fit that much in, um, whether that's, you know, this new era of the sandwich generation, that's, you know, the first time in life because we're all having kids later, right? Like we have kids and now we have aging parents that can't help us take care of our kids. So we're now on both ends, essentially the caregivers for, for two sets of folks that we love, And we're just time poor. Right. And so it goes back to your initial question, this whole sense of time poverty um, and it and how impactful it is, how especially here in the United States, we're not giving it enough credence, you know, is essentially the thesis of the book. Right. Like, you know, whether you call it fun, whether you call it leisure, whether you call it self-care, whatever you call it, the fact that we're not taking any time off the table for ourselves is clearly leading to some really detrimental outcomes.
0: I mean, we'll go over this because there are lots of strikes against you sometimes to be able to do that. Um, and, and you mentioned about physicians and we'll go over this as well. But but I like, I like in your introduction, there was a statement that uh, I'm going to read because I want to reflect on it and it might give an idea to the listeners what we're talking about a little bit in more depth. When I say it's time to stop chasing happiness and start having fun, these principles are fully grounded in peer-reviewed research. So what you're advocating is stop chasing something that you may never really achieve. Just let's try to have fun in the present. How much did you know before you wrote the book, all of this stuff, and you just had to put it into writing, right? Because this is your area versus you went and did your research and read, and you spent a year just trying to get articles and understand this, and then you put it in. Like, how much did you know before you even wrote versus additional research that you had to do, and then you brought this research in and put it into words?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question because I knew I was onto something, but you're certainly right. I treated the initial manuscript like a literature review um, because i that's one of the ways I have fun. Kind of a geek that way right like um and it allowed me to connect to some amazing researchers and i think what i found was that there was a lot lacking in the clinical psychology realm but a really rich research in the social psychology realm so i kind of tapped into that like wow okay you know we talk about um happiness in clinical terms quite a bit you know there's some amazing books you know like thousands on amazon right But a lot of social psychology was falling to the wayside, and it was showing that outcomes can really be improved through either reframing or adding elements to the things that we're already doing. So even if you can't necessarily go off and, you know, reclaim an old hobby or whatever, right? Because sometimes when people trivialize what my message is, that's what they think, that's what they hear, right? Oh, you're just telling me to go take a dance class? Like, you know, I don't need to read a whole book. But as you mentioned, that's not necessarily... you you know, if you want to do that, great. I think that's a great place to start if you have that type of privilege. But if you don't, if you're not doing at least some of the things that you enjoy, a whole host of interesting outcomes happen. And that came from really digging into the research. I think I had a a leg up because in workplace wellness, one of the tenets of physiological and psychological well-being in the workplace is autonomy. The more someone feels like they have the autonomy to make decisions, organize their time and their schedule, it's clear, you know, these are correlations, not cause. but it's clear that it correlates highly with both physiological uh, healthy outcomes and psychologically healthy outcomes, the higher the autonomy. Right. And so the crux of the book is how do you reclaim your agency and autonomy outside of work? Right. Or, and in some cases at work. And so I think that was the underpinning of knowledge, like, Hey, we talk about this all the time at work, but we're not talking about, you know, this sense, you know, call it Lotus Control or whatever you the want.
0: Culture, the culture of work, anywhere you are, the culture, the environment, the expectations, it, it, you know, they're very difficult. They're very demanding. I mean, it, 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 it's really, there. there's an element where you have control over as an individual, but then you've got the culture of the environment around you. I mean, you even mentioned that in your book, you says- you even say what I'm suggesting is that society has now devalued fun and leisure so much; it's significantly harming, harming us. I agree, it's harming us not having fun and leisure, but society has devalued this. Like, if and you- I think
1: specifically U.S. society. Like, you look at—I um, I won't just keep hammering on, on physicians specifically because you oh, see no, the- <laughs> no, no, but I meant you, because you see in the EU all vocations, because you, you certainly see this, um, you know, it's it's been highlighted in, in various documentaries that there's clear transition rituals for physicians in EU countries. Across the board, you're seeing now in earnest EU countries playing with a four-hour work week, right? Um, so that you're extending that uh, body of renewal, you know, for three days versus two. But even simple things like shutting down email servers at the end of a Friday, so that you know your employer can't send you work-related emails over the weekend, so that your weekends actually protected. <laughs> These things seem small, especially to the American social norm. That's like, wait, what? That doesn't make sense. But I give the younger generation a lot of credit. Like again, w- working with the workplace well-being, um, uh, you know, as a doctoral student within a, a humongous hospital group uh, here in California the younger doctors, I mean, they were advocating, you know, for having that type of space. And you're seeing it across the board, I think, um, you know, again, let's back up and talk in more general terms. But I think as you see parity begin to separate, right, people understand they're giving up a lot for not much given back, right? You know, this issue of um, an exchange of value. And I talk about it, especially in the gig economy, right? Like, you know, things like Uber, things like uh, um, uh, Grubhub and, and, and you know, things where they're uh, app-based gig uh, vocations, like these apps are literally incentivizing you to work more and figuring out how to pay you less, right? And that's true across the board. That's just like the most blatant, you know, where you can actually quantify this extrapolation of value from someone's time. And so to answer your question, it's like, we're working more, but the data suggests we're, we're producing less. So what's happening, right? And so I think there's a pretty straight line with regards to, you know, a lot of people are working harder only to make, you know, a subset of folks rich.
0: But how, how are we gonna shut down our email? I mean, the reality, <laughs> we have the email on our smartphones, and basically you carry your smartphone everywhere it's probably the first thing you look at when you wake up in the morning at least for me and and then you and then you it, it's like i joke around and i say you know what it's no longer an out of office message it's really you are being selective in who you answer because i don't buy that you're not seeing my email <laughs> because you're seeing it you have an iphone you have a samsung you have a smartphone you're going to see that email unless you completely don't install the email app on your personal phone and you use i mean you have to make an extra effort to do that and 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 i think you know i don't know it's, it's very difficult to put the onus on the employees and you say well your employer cannot reach you i mean you know you kind of held hostage to the employer unless you have complete financial anatomy, autonomy and you say i don't really care i'm you know, and you talk about this about the FU money type of thing. You talk about that at right. some point in the book.
1: No, I think that's exactly right. I think it's going to require us, at, you know, from leadership on down to set the stage because social norms, you know, as a behavioral scientist, I understand to change the current from the bottom up becomes extremely difficult. And that would require, um, almost radicalization, right? Like there would, you know, it it wouldn't be comfortable. um, And so hopefully we can do it in another way. And so one of the things is like, how do you get to leadership and make them understand that it's in their best interest? And you're slowly but surely seeing that. So there is some bright light on the horizon, right? Like, again, you know, I write about it in the book, but it just was reaffirmed in 2023 with regards to the, the developed world, the United States is the worst with regards to giving PTO, right? At, it's uh, two weeks on average for one year's worth of work. That puts us at the very bottom. The only country worse than us is Micronesia at nine days. And But what's even more telling is that even though we're second to last, 50% of employees don't even take that time, right? like And so Fortune 100 companies knowing that one that they have an attrition problem, but two that they're burning people out. They're actually incentivizing people to take their vacation because they realize detaching from work, even if it's as subtle as just two weeks out of a year, becomes so important to you know keep folks uh, you know energized in the way that they have vitality and vigor when they show up to work. And so, you know, to kind of shorten this up, one of the big Pieces of research that I found to go back to your earlier question, like you know, how much of this was intuitive and how much of it was re- research based. As I was putting my arguments together, I, I landed on this one study. Uh, it's out of Stanford, Harvard, and MIT. It's, it's called um, the hedonic flexibility principle, and essentially, it was a huge sample size, right? Twenty-eight thousand participants, and it, it you know that took this time survey, and so they were looking at you know, how people spent their time and how they felt about how they spent their time. And so it should be no surprise to anybody that folks that were burnt out generally find pretty poor ways to engage in leisure, right? In in the literature, we call it passive leisure. And it can be unhealthy escapism, like, again, what you suggested, you know, endless hours on your phone. It could be having a a few too many cocktails, it could be having you, you're you so depleted, you just pop down on your couch and essentially channel surf till it's time to go to bed and, and rinse and repeat, right? What was amazing, though, was the folks that actually do have true transition rituals. So back to your point about the folks that do have the, the sort of competence to turn off their phone and know that they can still answer all those emails when they wake up and engage in things that really light them up, what we would call active leisure, Go to work the next day with a lot more vitality and are a lot more productive. So the irony here is the people that are actually having fun not only are more productive, but are living a much funner life. So if you had your choice to do less and have a life devoid of joy yeah. versus <laughs> a productive life and one that was fun, you know, in that context, it becomes an easy choice, right?
0: You have my answer right there. You talk about um uh expanding your Fun file. Um, tell me a little bit about, about that. Like when you say about the fun file, um, I presume this is individualized. You know, I mean, what 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 might you suggest as fun? Uh, I may not view it as fun. Absolutely. Um, uh, so when you say about expanding the fun file, do you want to tell listeners what you know, what options they look at? I mean, how much. Like what's out there i mean we're yeah so no confused. i
1: think i mean it's so individual right and there's a lot of headwinds one of the reasons that chapter was written was i was surprised by you know so you know just to disclose my age i'm 50 and how many folks at 50 are like i kind of just don't know how to have fun anymore like awesome what do you you know what do you consider fun and it's a shoulder shrug i mean that's it's kind of strange right like if you can't answer Like what, and it was a very common sort of reaction. Like, you know, I've just been getting along to get along for so long. I don't even know if fun's important anymore. Okay, well, we've already built the case that it is, right? And so it requires you to do a little premeditated work. And as I write about in the book, sometimes that's the most difficult part because to do that is inherently not really that fun, right? Like really, you know, the first step is homework. Like, okay, but to go through that exercise, be mindful of what are the things that you used to do that, you know, after you did them, you felt fulfilled, you were smiling that you can still do, right? There are going to be some that, you know, you might have to grieve a little bit in the book I write about. For me, it's Iron Man's right? I've, I've had hip surgery now. So, you know, even though I really found that uh, enjoyable, it's, it's off the table, but I, you know, I don't. You can see in the background, I think, you know, I have a guitar hanging up. I reconnected with music because that was something I really enjoyed doing. But when my kids were young, I had to relinquish it. And I kind of forgot how much I enjoy, you know, sitting with my guitar and playing music. And so that's for me. But for your listeners, it's going to be whatever it is. Then inviting in some sort of adventure, whether that's, you know, adventure you really doing, you know, especially for folks that can't afford um, you know, even to do something locally or whatever it is, getting back in nature, you know, visiting with friends, uh, or it can be as, as simple as, in you know, reconnecting with reading or some, you know, because again, one of the headwinds is that in the, you know, not just the US for this particular issue, but in the West in general, we kind of celebrate fun as high arousal activities, Right. And I think that stops a lot of people in their tracks too. like, I don't want to go to a rock concert, my idea of fun, you know, isn't going to the club or whatever it is, it shouldn't be You're 50. So it might be just, for, you know, for my wife, it was reconnecting with the fact of taking a little bit of time off, going to this area that she really enjoys this calm area, and having the time to read Books that she really
0: likes. You know, I, th- I think I think one of the things that we struggle with, at least in the current society, Mike, uh, and and I I'd like your help with that uh, to help me and other listeners is that life is about trade offs. So there's this cultural thing that if I'm sitting down and, and I'm and I love reading by the way I'm an avid reader. I'm hoping to read 15 books um, a year. I'm realistic, not like the 50 mm-hmm. to 70 books, um, uh, a year. You think that by doing this, by taking that time, you are missing out on things that you could do to advance your professional career. I could be, uh, you know, writing another memo. I could be really talking, uh, uh, arranging a couple of meetings. I could be reviewing some files. I mean... Like, I can never write this email that you suggest sometimes you write. You said, thank you for your message. I am traveling and will not be checking my email. (laughs) If this is an emergency, take a deep breath, repeat until you either feel better or forget why you emailed me or (laughs) voted. Like, I can't. I mean, that's so. So so how much of this is really realistic, you know, because I think we we all fear that we could be doing something to advance our professional career and and unless you are either independently wealthy or you don't really need your profession to continue uh, supporting your family y- you are you have to adjust to the culture of wherever whether it's a hostel, an office a cancer center you can always think i can write another paper i can write another grant i could do a little bit more research or i can really you know do the fun stuff that you're doing, which one is going to really pay me dividends for my professional career? Are we completely elusive? Are we completely, you know, being paranoid? I mean, how, what do you tell listeners who think like that?
1: Yeah. So that's, these are, you know, really great questions within your environment, because this is not just unique to physicians, right? Essentially, anyone that's sort of operating in what we call now the knowledge economy is that we don't know where the goalposts end, right? And so being, and and I'm talking about super high achievers from physicians all all the way down to high-end CEOs, to venture capitalists, to folks that live more humble means, right, you know, middle-class folks. The ones that are the most successful, that have the longevity, to engage in professional pursuits are the ones that have clear transition rituals from when work is over. So those things that you just talked about, they can't be satiated, right? But what we do know, again, you know the statistics don't lie, is that folks that are engaged in that endless pursuit eventually are gonna burn out, right? I think I made the strongest case for this in chapter 11 with regards to people that are looking at social impact Right, because things like poverty, things like human trafficking, those aren't going to be problems that you're going to fix in your lifetime. Right? Essentially, if you wanted to provide all of your time for making an impact in that manner professionally, you could. But the folks that do do that, that have that kind of weird, you know, idea that you know this, the faster I run on a hamster wheel, the more successful I'm going to be, end up not being able to produce at all. So I think you need to ask yourself, okay, what is the long game here? What am I trying to achieve? And then also for a lot of folks that are kind of stuck in that rut, when I look back at my life, especially for parents like myself, am I going to be stoked that I was writing that grant at two in the morning and not paying attention to my partner and my kids, or am I going to be excited that I got the grant? And so you can have your cake and eat it too. You just need to know how much am I willing to give away in any given week? And then how much am I able to reclaim? And so often the mental frame I like is there's 168 hours in a week. If you want to give away half of that, 80 hours for your vocation, that still leaves you know, uh, another 86, right? And so obviously some of that needs to be sleep. Hopefully you're sleeping at least what, seven times seven, <laughs> I didn't know I was coming on here to do math, but so hopefully you're sleeping at least 49, if not more hours, but that still leaves a big corpus of hours that you should be able to do, even if you're working the hours, which when we look at time surveys, when people say that they're working seven hours a week, generally that's not true. No, you but know, that's generally- actually
0: I love that he did the math, actually. I have to admit, I haven't, haven't thought about it this way, but 24 multiplied by seven days and and you're subtracting 50 hours for sleep. It's actually, when you do the math and when, when you put it like this black and white, I, I can appreciate the fact that there is enough time.
1: Yeah, and so what happens is when you do get that busy, um, I'm really loving this uh, professor right now by the name of Colin West. He calls it admin time, right? And so I see this with physicians, but I also see it with a lot of folks that you know are, are in a corporate environment. It's called admin work. And I have a lot... Uh, um, <laughs> I'm going to do a quick aside because uh, this is kind of a confession. So when I first got into the you know digital health space, I was a beat writer for Very Well Health. Um, and I was advocating for all these new digital tools. And so I remember when EMRs, you know, really coming online and how great they were. And all of our uh, um, articles that were coming out were peer reviewed by physicians, right? And I forget who the physician was. It was someone from John Hopkins. And he was like, you're only telling one side of the story. Do you realize how much EMRs are burning out physicians? Because, yeah. yeah." And so there is all this admin work, right? you know, acknowledging the fact that all this stuff is just getting piled on and technology is making it more complex. You know, for physicians, again, like not to get off the rails, but I just know your audience. It could be as simple as as admin having some empathy and figuring out how to hire scribes, right? Scribes aren't expensive. And that frees up some of your time to now recharge your batteries so you can be a better physician, right? I mean, most physicians are aware of the um, correlation between burnout and lack of empathy. And once a physician doesn't have empathy for their patients, clinical outcomes
0: oh, no, go up. I- absolutely you know uh, that you you actually have a couple of very interesting chapters because i've seen that with uh, physicians um y- you talk about how it's important to have fun uh with friends and you even title i believe that chapter friendship is weird or something like that and <laughs> it's a yeah. Uh, right quote. you also talk about uh you know having uh you know fun with your children or as a parent um you know uh understandably you know being a parent is very challenging especially when you have younger kids and you have a career and everything Um, but you really talk about the importance of social connection with with friends when you were doing your research did you notice people are lonelier because of social media they are not making an effort to stay in touch with your friends because clearly it's intuitive uh who 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 can even argue the importance of having good friends and 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 colleagues but uh I bet that you notice it's not really happening as commonly as you wish to you you wish you have witnessed
1: yeah I think I tapped into something and again as anyone that reads the book um because I'm not a neuroscientist but I you know interviewed some amazing ones like Lisa film Barrett um anyways I think what's clear, one, to answer your question in two parts, the younger generation, the fact that they're not having true connection, I mean, I, you know, obviously, these, you always got to be clear that these are correlations, but the, I mean, you know, it it's a really strong argument, right, that these folks are lonelier than they ever have been, um, mainly because they're it's performance art for an audience that doesn't care about their well-being, right? And so is social media having an impact? I think very few would argue that it's not right? Because these aren't true connections. But what I really tapped into, and especially during the pandemic, so, you know, it's a little bit unfortunate that the pandemic allowed, you know, for this to sort of emerge, but, you know, connecting through Zoom, connecting through sort of long distance relationships, you know, even if that's just long distance across town, because, you know, our physiological safety was, you know, at risk during that time, It's clear that the oxytocin that's released when we do feel intimate connection with our loved ones, with the friends that we care about, is one of the additive pieces to building health equity, right? And and so we don't know exactly why that is, but it's clear from a host of different studies attacking it from various angles that feeling like we have friends and that we're giving, not just taking, is the glue that sort of keeps our you know what we call it good needs, mental
0: it work it I mean you mentioned that it does need work you, you need you know you can't you have to pick up the phone and call people you have to make an effort to meet people and again it goes back to the concept that you have time it's a, it's a it's a limited resource but when you put it in numbers and you multiply the 24 hours by seven days there is time but you have to make that effort I mean friends will leave you if you don't really nurture the relationship
1: Not only that, but I think, you know, as we've both been discussing, we're all time poor right now, you know, for the most part. And so figuring out, you know, putting your good foot forward and setting the stage so that someone can easily accept your invite makes it so much easier for them, right? And so if it's something where you have the ability to have some level of premeditation and concern, like, hey, I bought us tickets to the comedy show on Friday, you know, can you go? Oh, you can't? Okay, well, great, the refundable, when can you go? You know, and if it's a friend, they're going to go, oh, I can go this next Thursday, right? If they're not a friend they keep rushing you off, maybe you need to find another friend. So I think that's part of the problem, right? I certainly noticed that, that so many of us were sort of, you know, um, just kind of kicking the can down the road, because, you know, as you trickle down Maslow's Triangle, you know, and you just don't feel safe all around, some of these higher needs can fall to the wayside. So essentially jump-starting them in some fashion becomes important, right? And it could just be like someone that you find friendly at work. You know, I talk about this. A lot of times it's hard to find friends within your immediate cohort because of all the weird thing, group dynamics that should exist at work because you need psychological safety with your immediate cohorts. But a casual friend, you know, that you just enjoy their company, just a quick coffee before work, you know, whatever it is, joining a book club, these things that seem so pedestrian when you say them out loud, but become so important. And when you talk to people after they do them, they're so invigorating. They're like, I can't believe I didn't do them sooner because the risk is right. Like, ah, there's no way I'm going to have, you know, like I'm so tired going to a book club from seven to eight. You know, you kind of know it because I bet you, I mean, these podcasts have to be invigorating right or you wouldn't do them right like and so this is your fun so it's what, what's fun for you is it you know talking with folks about books is it doing a podcast is it just enjoying you know are you an introvert so it's a intimate cup of coffee with a friend well,
0: so talk to me about introvert extrovert you spend a lot of time in the book about this which i appreciate and and I think you go back and forth a little bit about how you define this, and and maybe tell listeners how you view uh, the difference between introverts and extroverts when it comes to uh, trying to reduce burnout, improve, uh, having, ha- being happier, and 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 more fun.
1: Yeah, so I mean, condense essentially, introverts still need that connection that we talked about, right? The science is clear there. The issue is when you're introverted it can be depleting to be among big groups. And so some of the common complaints that I got from introverts when I was putting this material together is that a lot of these happiness books, quote unquote, are rah-rah, right? Like you need to get out there, just go you know, to a sporting and that's event.
0: That's what's good about your book though. I want to yeah, make sure Listeners, well, it's true because I was a little bit like, you know, I don't want to really have like another self-improvement book. Like I can <laughs> go and conquer the world and, and win the NBA, but- it wasn't like that. It was it was really um so well done, it made me feel you. you really cared, but you also provide some practical solutions wherever you are in the spectrum of of, of life.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway for me was getting introduced to Jeannie, Dr. Jeannie Tsai's work out of Stanford. Um, and she's really highlighted again this western you know idea that fun has to be boisterous and what we call in psychology high arousal, right? Like if you're not, you know. Uh, doing a tough mutter or whatever, then that's not fun. Okay, well, if that's fun, right, because it's been marketed to you so much, like, I just must not be a fun person. So I don't need fun in my life. And you see a lot of people stuck in that mode. And so fun for you could be calm, serenity. And, you know, for my brother, I talk about it in the book, a nice nature hike, you know, he kind of wanted to play in the middle. So he found a group of hikers where he could sit and hike by himself if he wanted. And then when he wanted a little bit of conversation and connection, you know, he could kind of move up to the group talk. And I, I believe everyone in that group, you know, kind of had the same affinity. So it's just playing it, playing around with what's fun for you. But to answer your question specifically, throw out the idea that fun has to be, you know, that Instagram influencer, you know, clicking their heels on the beach, you know, with a bunch of people in the background. Like if for you, again, it's just quiet, serenity, a nice glass of wine, good company, you know, uh, amongst friends, then just organize that. But at least make sure there's some joy and delight in your life. If you're looking back at that 168 hours, and you can't name two or three hours within your week where you're like, okay, that, that was good, you know, then a radical course correction is needed. And so many of us are just have habituated our lives in a way that that's not happening and it's clear what the outcome is
0: yeah well i've got some work to do and i think some (laughs) of my listeners some of my listeners do i need to have more dessert and french fries and uh, (laughs) that's not
1: true though you read the chapter about escapism as well so
0: yeah i did uh it's a, it's a it's a great read i really would love any everybody to uh to buy it and, and read it and and i really enjoyed it anything you want to share with listeners i may have forgotten to ask you i, I don't want to give them everything i want to tease people to make sure that they really look into it but um anything specific that you would like to uh address before i uh let you go i believe you have some basketball training to do
1: <laughs> well, that was uh tomorrow but yeah i appreciate that um the uh I think the main thing, you know, we touched on both of it is, you know, I think most of your listeners, you know, have extremely busy lives. So what are the small steps that you can implement just to see, you know, if it's going to be restorative and additive or depleting, because often that fallacy is where we get stuck, right? Like, I just, you know, that's great, but I can't do it, right? And so there's three things, one, figure out what two or three hours, you can kind of swap out things that you find really, really depleting. And maybe that social media use, we all, you know, on our phones, it will tell us what apps we're on. So, you know, you might be a doom scroller. For some, it might just be, uh, you know, again, surfing. Like uh, if you're looking back at how you spent your Wednesday and it's just plopped down on the couch and someone asked you two weeks from now, How did you spend that time? And you couldn't even give them an answer. Like find those spots. Because the last thing I want to do is prescribe fun to be just another thing on your to-do list, right? That's essentially just another form of toxic positivity. And and so find that space and then figure out what it is that you can play with to integrate it back in. Maybe it's just a, you know, reestablishing a date night with your wife, you know, like getting a sitter and just having that one day a week where you're reconnecting with a loved one maybe it is reconnecting to a hobby. You know, like I said, for me, it was reconnecting with playing music. Um, Maybe it is just picking back up a book habit because that's what you love. You know, your kind of signature strength is curiosity. And so digging in to material instead of, again, just kind of perusing PubMed, you know, my dad's a researcher, so he gets stuck in that mode. I had to kind of like, dad, how much do you need to learn about PQQ? You know, he's like, you're right. I've just essentially read the same study 10 times. So find those opportunities and then play with that time to re-invite joy and delight into your life. And then the second one would be, can you create transition rituals? Like really you brought it up. Like, you know, I can always look at my email if I want, that's true, but play with shutting it down at 8 PM and not going back to it till maybe an hour after you get up and see if it has any impact at all on your professional life. And I guarantee you, I don't guarantee, but I almost guarantee that it will have no impact and you will start to see your heart rate variability go down, you'll start to feel calmer and you'll start to feel more invigorated. And then hopefully you can now, because you're not essentially extending work until you hit your pet, you know, your head hits the pillow. Maybe you can fit fun into those extra hours that you've reclaimed. So those are two pieces of parting advice.
0: Mike, Dr. Rucker, thank you so much. This is really um, amazing. I, uh, I've learned a lot, and I think my listeners have learned a lot about uh, a little bit more of integrating some of your advice and ideas into their life, because I do think it will hopefully lead to uh, uh, less burnout, more enjoyment, and improved quality of life. I, I really appreciate
1: it. Uh, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it as well. This has been a pleasure.
0: We're going to bring you back in about a year after we see people implementing these changes, and you're going to be on the hot seat. We'll (laughs) see. I'm like, Mike, I kept eating dessert and it's not working.
1: (laughs) Again, that's not what I.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know, I know. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you everyone for listening. I appreciate you tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate my guest, Dr. Mike Rucker and him spending some time with us on today's show, telling us about his book, The Fun Habit. Certainly a book I would recommend for everyone to read. It was a great read and I enjoyed it immensely. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Mike Rucker, the author himself, and that you are going to have way more fun in your lives, effective immediately. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with the saying by Oscar Wilde. Some cause happiness wherever they go, others whenever they go. Until next time, take care.